If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. Have you ever thought about what would be your end? As 2023 is behind us, and as 2024 is ahead of us, where do you picture your life would be a year from now? Five years from now? Ten years from now? 20 years, 40 years from now. On the first morning on January 1st of 1892, Pastor Charles Spurgeon at age 57, having been away from preaching for several months because of sickness and a month away from his death, in reflecting his past year, 1891, he spoke about the God-intended lessons of the year, such as the instability of earthly joys, and gazed upon the New Year's journey of 1892. Spurgeon confessed, We know nothing of the events which lie before us, of life, of death to ourselves or to our friends, or of changes of position, or of sickness, or health. Close quote. But one thing Spurgeon knew on that final month of his life, as he knew for all of his Christian life, he believed in God's sovereignty. He believed in God's faithfulness. He believed in the unfailing love of God. He said, I see a highway cast up by the foreknowledge and predestination of God. Nothing of the future is left to chance. Nay, not the falling of a sparrow, nor the losing of a hair is left to haphazard. But all the events of life are arranged and appointed not only is every turn in the road marked in a divine map, the Lord has ordained our path in his infallible wisdom and infinite love. Although Spurgeon didn't see much of 1892, he encouraged his congregation at Metropolitan Tabernacle, whom he pastored for 38 years. Oh, to believe from January to December. Throughout this year, may the Lord be with you. Amen? That was one of his last sermons that he preached at Metropolitan Tabernacle. So dear brother or sister, what will be your end? At the New Year's end in 2024, will you be a believer still? A more mature disciple? A more humble, joyful, learned, faithful follower of Christ? I trust, of course, this would be the desire of most of us in this room. Yet sadly, it is not true of all. To our deep discouragement and disappointment, some we know have grown disillusioned in faith. Some we know have deconstructed faith. Some we know even have denounced their faith altogether. How do we make sense of it? As we have known so many in the past few years through the pandemic more and more, once so-called professing Christians fell away from the faith and abandoned God. How do we piece together the theology of God's sovereignty and human sin? And as our passage this afternoon shows, how do we make sense of Solomon's apostasy? We're continuing our study through First and Second Kings in our series, The King of Kings. And as I've shared, the Kings is about the short-lived peaceful reign of the United Kingdom of Israel under King Solomon and Israel's eventual division and downfall and decimation and exile. And as we close out part one of our five-part study through the kings, first and second kings, 
In 1 Kings 11, this is the seeming tragic ending of King Solomon, God's beloved chosen king, the blessed heir of King David, through whom God intended to continue the covenant he made with David. We've known Solomon to be a confusing king throughout the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, but we are no longer left in doubt any longer. The author of the book no longer holds us in suspense. This is Solomon's tragic downfall. But what was Solomon's end? The more and more you think about it, the whole situation leaves us wondering. Can we confirm King Solomon as an apostate? An apostate is a person who renounces faith in God. Having been once a chosen of God, beloved of God, wisest and the most rich, powerful king of Israel, authoring Proverbs and many Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, what was indeed Solomon's fate? I think the question leaves us to ponder why the message of the kings is so clear and why its profound lesson still proves powerful and relevant to his people today. Kings fail and kingdoms fall, but the word of the Lord stands. What we learn through the kings is that there is so much more going on than simply the story of Solomon and the nation of Israel. There is a greater story being told that even in the tragic failure of human kings, the king of kings will not fail. That even in the unfaithfulness of human beings, our king of kings is faithful to the end. That even when our love for him wanes, his love for us is to the end. Solomon serves us as an example and as a warning of who and what a servant of God ought not to be. Yet Solomon also points us to the greater Solomon, who is the substance of the shadow that King Solomon merely was. So from 1 Kings 11, I want to share with you three lessons from Solomon's apostasy. Three lessons Solomon's apostasy teaches us. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, compromises from verses 1 through 10. Compromises, 1 through 10. Point number two, consequences from verses 11 through 33. Consequences. And point number three, covenant promises from verses 34 and 43. Compromises, consequences, covenant promises. Brothers and sisters, I pray on this first Lord's Day of 2024, this message will remind you once again the security and the surety of his word. Amen? I pray this message will encourage you anew to trust in his promises of him who has been faithful to a thousand generations who will be faithful to the end. We have failed, we do fail, and we will fail, but he will not fail. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for our Sunday gathering as we meet again in another location. For the past two weeks, we weren't here. We met somewhere else. So praise God for you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you know yourself to not be a Christian and you are here today, we especially welcome you. We've been praying for you. Just the fact alone that you came, we trust, is by God's providence. We believe that the Lord God led you here this afternoon for you to hear his word, for you to hear his good news, that sinners can look to Jesus Christ, God's son, and be forgiven of all their sins, that you can have assurance of salvation and live the new life here on earth and live eternal life with him in heaven forevermore. We pray that you would look to him and trust in him today, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So without further ado, let's turn now to his word, which can be found on pages 291 and 292 in the blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, as you look there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open uh, for the entire duration of the message so you know that this is God's word for you. 
to grow you in faith and trust in Him. As we have a longer text, let's dive straight into the first point. What can we learn from Solomon's apostasy? Point number one, compromises from verse 1 through 10. Read with me those first 10 verses which says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart has turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. The story of King Solomon is one of the saddest events in the Bible. Perhaps the reason is because Solomon wasn't just anyone. Solomon was the next king who would bring back King David's vitality and remember for him to remember God's covenant. He was the anointed king who built a house for Yahweh, the God of Israel, to dwell among God's people permanently. He was the chosen king who led the kingdom of Israel to its greatest prosperity and notoriety. Hence, from such a high point of Israel's history to such scandalous idolatry, no wonder the fall of Solomon is such a devastating tragedy. Solomon was the wisest king who became foolish. Solomon was the richest king who became spiritually bankrupt. He was the greatest of earthly kings, the epitome of human achievement, who became Israel's embarrassment because he loved the things of this world more than he loved God. He loved glory, gold, and girls more than his God who loved him, who was the giver of all the gifts he had owned. And hence, the stark shift from 1 Kings 3.3, which said, Solomon loved the Lord, to in 1 Kings 11.1, now Solomon loved many foreign women. Explains just how far Solomon had shifted in his heart. Hence, one of the first observations we can make from these verses is the clear emphasis that Solomon's issue was first and foremost an issue of the heart. You'll notice no less than five times Solomon's heart is mentioned. In verse 3, his wives turned away his heart. In verse 4, several times his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father. And in verse 9, his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. What the author clearly means to communicate to us is Solomon's violation of the very foundation of all of God's command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might was broken. 
But not only that, Solomon was also in direct violation of God's specific command for the nation of Israel. There in verse 2, you shall not enter in marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods, as according to Exodus 34, 16. And for Israel's kings from Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Verse 1 again tells us Solomon loved not one, not few, but many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, a Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian women, and Hittite women. And just to make sure no one misunderstand, God's caution against marrying foreign women wasn't racial. Interracial marriage is never condemned in Scripture. What is condemned is marrying those who are unequally yoked. It was a caution against marrying those who did not worship Yahweh and worshiped other gods. Why? Because as we see in our passage, and as God has warned previously in Israel's history, such marriages will lead to idolatry and apostasy, as we see Solomon doing here in chapter 11. Solomon's polygamy turns him into a polytheist. That was the problem. The phrase, Solomon clung to these in love, at the end of verse 2, serves as a decisive summary of the state of Solomon's heart. The word clung is the same word used in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So instead of clinging fast to God and his commandments, Solomon clung to these in love. That word these is also interesting. It's a masculine word. So in describing his foreign wives, the picture is incomplete. The fact that Solomon married women of these specific nations show that his intentions were for more political power and more political dominance. And the description of wives who are princesses confirm the purpose of these marriages were for diplomatic negotiations. Nevertheless, there is no subtle way to describe Solomon's lust for power. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Somebody asked at EMP yesterday morning, how is this even possible? Okay, This is not just some problem. This is an obsession. This is insanity. This is a gross addiction. It's perversion. You don't call someone with this many partners normal. You call them sick. Yes, it's true. It was customary for kings to take many wives. I looked up online. If any other kings in history came even close, not one. It's clear Solomon is sick in the head and the heart with an insatiable lust for money, power, and sex, and carnal pleasure in the worst ways possible. And this was the king of God's nation, a king who was supposed to carry out as an example of one who fears and loves the Lord. And God had warned him at least twice. Listen, when God makes a personal visitation, you don't forget that. God had warned him at least twice. Verses 9 and 10 says God had commanded him concerning this very thing, that he should not go after other gods. But tragically, he, Solomon, did not keep what the Lord commanded. It says again, Solomon clung to these in love. Remember, I brought up the verse from last week, how Jesus had asked Peter, do you love me more than these there's no denying what Solomon loved more than God at this point in his life. He, himself, and his. Which is how we can make at least some sense of why Solomon turns to worship lesser gods mentioned in verses 5 through 8. Ashereth, and Milcom, and Chemish, and Molech. 
These were gods in the ancient days of sex and child sacrifices. Crazy, isn't it? Not much has changed in thousands of years. When people depart from Yahweh, the one true living God, they do it on the altar of perverse sex and child sacrifice. Nothing has changed. But back to the topic at hand, you see back in the ancient world, polytheists tended to worship the gods of nations who had conquered their armies or at least the gods of countries more powerful than their own. Yet ironically, Solomon worships the gods of the people he has already conquered and had already controlled. What was Solomon possibly trying to gain from such activity by worshiping foreign gods of lesser nations? We can only guess that he was so blinded by his sin. There's no reasonable explanation at all. He wanted more power. He desired to please his wives, to be all things to all people. He had no more fear nor love for God. It is a tragedy. I think the point the author makes for us is vividly clear, don't you? Sin is stupid. Sin is an inexhaustible abyss of unreasonable, insatiable wickedness, greed, pride, and lostness. Sin is stupid. The Puritans sometimes compared little sins to baby snakes wriggling out of their nests. They are tiny, yet they are deadly. And if they are not put to death when they hatch, they will grow into huge serpents. As one commentator exhorts, we start falling into sin long before we ever fall into disgrace. This was the result of little compromises in sin. So if we wish to avoid our own tragic downfalls, brothers and sisters, may we fight again every little sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We need to read the Bible and hide the truths of Scripture in our hearts in order that we can grow in grace and perseverance by its truths and by the Spirit's power. We need to remember Christ's sacrifice for us by participating in the Lord's Supper, which we're about to do in a few moments, to strengthen our faith and our holiness and our unity and love by God's grace among the body of believers. We need to pray for the Spirit to increase our desires for God, which is what we're hoping to do through our fasting by dedicating our first 40 days to Him in prayer and in studying the Word. Brothers and sisters, I pray Solomon's tragic downfall wakes us up and scares us, or it should, that small sins may seem insignificant at first, yet continuing to let it foster can be totally, completely, entirely disastrous. Such was the case for Solomon. He led the entire nation of Israel to be divided up and destroyed. A little more luxury, a little more glory, a little bit more of flirting with exotic romances and love interests, a new style of worship, a compromise here, a compromise there led Solomon, the wisest and most powerful, richest king in the world, in, in the history of the world we ever saw. Someone who literally needed nothing because he had everything falling into immorality and idolatry. It is a tragedy. So dear beloved, what are the tiny sins you allow to linger near you and grow? How might you take it to the Lord in prayer in 2024? How might you kill it, mortify it before it becomes a ravenous serpent you can't control any longer? You may read Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines and agree it's gross and sick. But how about the ways you have perhaps compromised on your purity over and over and over again without a second thought? How about the way you repeatedly gossip and are envious of others? How about the way you constantly grumble about situations in your own life? 
and the way you low-key blame God all the time and excuse your lack of zeal and joy for God on the circumstances of your life or on someone else, what someone has done to you, rather than the sins you allow to fester and grow in your own hearts. Dear brothers and sisters, what is the state of your heart before God? Examine it. Ask the Spirit to convict you in it. Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Don't think little of it. What loves are you clinging to this afternoon? What are these things that you love more than God? No, you have no option to not surrender to God today. This is why this word, which is so harsh and hard for us to hear, is for us, for you, for me this afternoon. Harbor your sins no more. Trust in God alone. Amen. I was so shocked to hear recently that a well-known pastor friend, that if I said the name of this person, you will know pretty well, was again, this brother was disqualified in ministry. Brothers and sisters, sin is a roaring lion ready to pounce at your front door. You let it linger, it will kill you. How might you more lean into your fellow brothers and sisters for discipleship, for accountability in the new year? How might you depend on one another more for your spiritual growth, for evangelism, for prayer? How might you be more accountable, transparent, responsible toward and for one another? Solomon's apostasy teaches us to confront sin, examine our hearts in humility and honesty, and to stop compromising our holiness before God and our devotion to God. Amen? That's point number one. Point number two, what can we learn from Solomon's apostasy? Point number two, consequences from verses 11 through 33. Uh, because of Solomon's great disobedience, we read in verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. And hence, the following verses are the consequences of Solomon's sin, namely in verse 11. Look there. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. We know that Solomon's violation of the covenant stipulations to keep God's commandments have not been broken just once or twice, but by this point in Solomon's life, in his old age, it has become a practice. That's what verse 11 says, right? Therefore, we see how God will raise up three adversaries. Headed the Edomite from the south in verses 14 through 22, and Rezin, the son of Iliadad, from the north in verses 23 through 25. Both who had ill feelings toward Israel and Solomon, who remained very quiet during Solomon's reign. However, we see in these verses, as God's anger kindled against Solomon for his disobedience, God raising up these adversaries to harm Israel. In these verses, you read of all the background drama, why they hated Israel and wanted to destroy Solomon, but it's almost as if they were powerless until God allows them to be a significant threat to Israel. Now, there are all sorts of theological musings we can venture into, how God allows judgment upon his own people, which is biblical. We see it over and over again. How God uses discipline to correct his disobedient people and lead them back to right and true worship. And the lessons we can learn in our own times of suffering and trials we face today. However, I want to get to the point of the passage because there's so much to cover, so much good things. The biggest threat that Solomon will face is the threat from within from verses 26 through 33, where we read of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the Ephraimite of Zerada, the servant of Solomon. Now, we read back up in verse 11 that God will surely tear the kingdom from you, Solomon, and will give it to your servant. 
Well, here in verse 26, we see the elucidation of who this servant will be. Who would take over Solomon's kingdom? The irony is that he was someone Solomon himself had promoted because Solomon saw that Jeroboam was a very able, young, very industrious man. Now verse 27 says, And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. But actually, the reason isn't clear, as in Jeroboam didn't really have negative feelings or ill will towards Solomon at all, other than what we read in verses 29 through 33. So look at those verses again. Verses 29 says, And at the time when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel." Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashereth, the god of the Sidonians, Chemish, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. So, it's been a while since a prophet of God shows up, since prophet Nathan in chapter 1. Now, ten chapters later, prophet Ahijah is called by God to prophesy to Jeroboam of his plans to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and to give ten of the twelve tribes of Israel to Jeroboam. Henceforth, for Jeroboam to be the king of the northern kingdom, ushering in a new era of the divided kingdom of Israel, north and south, and the era of the prophets, which we'll study, Lord willing, next fall. Without getting into too much details about these adversaries that God raises up as a process of the power transfer from Solomon to these other kings, because we'll read more about Israel's adversaries in the following chapters, I want to focus mainly on the lessons this chapter teaches us about the consequences of sin. First, we see every minute detail of the judgment on Solomon's sins is a sovereign orchestration of God. Which adversaries will be raised up? when they will attack and will become a real threat, who will be involved in the power transfer, how the kingdom will be divided, God is behind it all. He is in complete control. Despite man's wretched and terrible sins, it says God was angry. We must not take light of that. He is a just God. He will punish sin, whereas our anger is reactionary, uncontrolled, erratic, not righteous. God's anger is just. He is the righteous God. He is the sovereign ruler and the righteous judge, which is the reason why we are left to wonder and ponder why God would not entirely destroy a wicked and rebellious people. After all, by this point, it was not only Solomon who was practicing the worship of idols, as the king does, and so does the nations go. Idolatry of sex and child sacrifice, we imagine, was the norm at this point in Israel. They were complicit. They were guilty as well. Well, some may complain, well, that's not fair, that all of Israel gets punished because of one man's sin. Again, I'm trying to emphasize and help you picture the scene that it was not just one man. They were all guilty. They were all complicit. It was the practice of their day. But think about this. Even in asking that question, we as readers of the Word always have a tendency to look to the man. We look at Solomon and we think, what a loser. What a failure, what a pervert. 
Some of us may even think only if I had that kind of wisdom, that kind of money, that kind of power, I would have never, ever done that, right? Maybe some of you have thought that. Well, that's exactly what the bigger point of the story is. This story is more than about just Solomon. This story is more than just about Israel. It's not about you and me. Don't miss the consistent driving theme of the entire chapter in describing the great downfall of Solomon. In verse 12, Yet, for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your days. In verse 13, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I'll give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And in verse 31 through 32, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Brothers and sisters, does this sound like a God who has no love, no grace, no mercy towards sinners? Of course not. This sounds like a God who keeps his promises despite man's wickedness and sins. This sounds like a God who keeps his word to his own no matter what. Which is why I believe 1 Kings 11 is no less about Solomon's downfall as it is more about our God's faithfulness to his own unfaithful people. Kings and kingdoms will fail and fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. That's the message of this book, which moves us to our final point. Point number three, what does Solomon's apostasy teach us? Third and finally, about God's covenant promises. That is the point of this chapter. That is the point of this entire book. Let's read those verses 34 through 43. Nevertheless, I will take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I'll make him a ruler all the days of his life. This is fascinating. For the sake of David, my servant, whom I choose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires. You shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishkag, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place." There's a lot going on in these verses, but I want to focus on three important points. It is, again, very clear by its repetition what exactly God intends to do in this very particular situation. The kingdom will be torn from Solomon's hand because of the consequences of his polygamy and his idolatry. The kingdom will be divided north and south, ten tribes to Jeroboam, one tribe, actually two tribes because Benjamin is not mentioned, okay, but likely assumed to Rehoboam, his son, But notice, Jeroboam will have an equal opportunity in verses 38 and 39. If he will keep God's commands, he will be blessed. God will be with him. He will rule again. It is emphasizing for us 
God's sovereign control and rule over his people. Secondly, it emphasizes again of God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promise. Verse 36, yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. You see, no matter how far Israel's kings and the people of God's nation have fallen or will fail, God's promise will last forever. That my servant David always will have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name. Brothers and sisters, this is the beautiful grace and mercy and promise of God. This is the eternal and matchless love of God. He will keep his word. Third, we see in verse 39 something very interesting. Look there. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Now, this is mainly speaking of Israel, but can it also apply to Solomon? Back in 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 through 15, God had promised David, if and when David's son was disobedient, God says, I will discipline him with a rod of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Think about that. In the next verse, in verse 40, we see a stark contrast of character. Solomon hears God's plans for Jeroboam, a man he himself raised up and put in power. And what does Solomon do? He tries to kill Jeroboam. But that's not our God, is it? Our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. It's the best news you will ever hear this year and every year. It's the news that you will need to cling to every single day. It's the news that you need to know, love, and proclaim. That the holy and righteous God created us for us to know his fathomless love. Although we are wickedly wretched and evil in our deeds, in our disobedience, and our rebellion toward him, he has mercy and compassion on us, his people, whom he has set apart before the foundation of the world. And his love and justice is displayed fully and clearly when he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life in perfect obedience, to die the death in perfect submission, to rise from death in perfect fulfillment and power of God's promise. And that offspring of David would rule and reign forever on an everlasting throne. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, and he rules and reigns as the King of kings and Lord of lords today, in this very moment, calling all who would look to him and trust in him for forgiveness, granting them redemption, salvation, new and eternal life. That is who our God is, and 1 Kings 11 does not want you to miss that. Every page of the scriptures points to this reality. He is who he says he is. And Jesus Christ is the substance. He's the point. He is the subject of every shadow that points to him. So if you're here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, I want to ask you as we have concluded 2023 and begin 2024, do you know a love as deep and as true and as lasting as our God's love? Do you know a promise as true and unbreakable as God's covenant, even despite all the sins that we commit toward him? 
I want to challenge you, start this new year by repenting of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in yourself and of the things of this world, believing that this Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and trust Him with your whole life today. Whatever circumstances, whatever situations, whatever past, whatever guilt, whatever shame, trust Him. Look to Him. Cling to Him today. If you want to talk more about how you can follow this Jesus, the pastors of this church will be happy to talk to you at the close of service, at the doors. Or if you just turn around and look at somebody smiling next to you, it means they want to talk to you about how awesome it is to follow Jesus. Amen? Brothers and sisters, as we look at Solomon, I pray that we would look at ourselves. Solomon was hopeless beyond words. He owned the whole world, yet he was not righteous. He had everything that we would ever, ever want, yet he was not satisfied. He was lost and dead in sin. Yet, because of our good and gracious God, he was not without hope. God's affliction on him will not be forever. Brothers and sisters, simply, this is true. Jesus is the true and greater David whose kingdom will last forever. Jesus is the new and greater Solomon who is the offspring of David who would sit on the eternal throne. Jesus is the new and greater temple in whom God's presence will dwell forever, in whom his people may enter in freely since Jesus is our mediator to worship him and to praise him with abandon. Jesus is the new and greater Jerusalem the true and lasting promised land where we will dwell with him forever and all who fear and love his name. As we look at Solomon, I pray that you would look to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Was Solomon an apostate, forever lost and abandoned by God in his sin? Theologians and biblical scholars debate. They're uncertain. But if the words of verse 34 are true, nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I choose. Do you wonder what Solomon did with the rest of his life? I imagine basking in the Lord's mercy and compassion because of the promise made to his father, David. Biblical scholars argue the book of Ecclesiastes was Solomon's letter of repentance. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he begins by saying, vanities, vanities, it's all vanities. And at the conclusion in chapter 12, he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Many of you know uh, this past week, a couple of us, our church members, were at this conference called CrossCon. But on the way back uh, on the flight, the Lord gave me the gracious opportunity uh, to share the gospel and talk to a brother named Nate, who was just sitting next to me, and we're just talking. Well, anyways, as I was beginning to do my thing, share the gospel, start with small talk, I began to just talk to him about whether he goes to church, where he lives, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, as I was beginning to share the gospel, he says, I know it all. He said, my dad used to be a Baptist pastor who used to tell me these things all the time. But... He was the worst man who abused me and beat me up all the time. He is a hypocrite. Broke my heart. I told him, you know what? We're all sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness and know that even though you experience the worst form of Christians possible, the love of Christ is still true and real. Jesus died for the sins of all men. And I shared with him the gospel. 
And I couldn't think of a church in San Antonio where he's going for training. But I said, remember, New Covenant Baptist Church, Rockville, Maryland. Look us up. And if you ever contact me, I'll send you some church recommendations. Pray, brothers and sisters, for Nate. Pray for those whom the Lord puts in our lives who need the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ in 2024. Don't be like Solomon. Don't be like Nate's dad, who in their rebellion and sin, let those whom they are responsible for experience agony and pain because of their own sins. Be like the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ, who is the true peace and true rest, who offers forgiveness, love, and hope. In 2024, brothers and sisters of New Covenant Baptist Church, may we cling to Christ alone. May we proclaim his good news. May we cling to his grace and mercy. May we hold fast to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for the unshakable hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, who ascended into heaven, who sits sovereignly as King of kings and Lord of lords for all who would look to you and trust in you. Father, there is nothing that we can do or can't do to separate your love from us. Father, no matter how deep sin we are in, Father, we could repent. We can look to you. We can trust in your forgiveness. That's the whole reason why you died on the cross, for our sins, for our forgiveness, for our redemption. Father, help us to be more confident in the new year, in you, in your gospel, in your truth. Help us to not grow weary in proclaiming this wonderful news to all we meet. And Father, we do pray that you will draw many of those who do not know you to know you, cling to you, to be part of this body so that we can continue to hope together and trust in you forevermore until the day of your return. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.